Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we find ourselves in familiar territory tonight as we, th- as we see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they are affectionately known. Tonight we are zeroing in on the story of the fiery furnace, a familiar story, a story that no doubt brings images of flannel graph to your mind, and we are going to look to this text tonight and see if the flannel graph actually matches up. This is, a, this is a fascinating story, an amazing story that reveals a moment when faith is held to the flame, both figuratively and literally. In Daniel 3, we are coming in the middle of a story in the book of Daniel. That story begins in Daniel chapter 1 with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his forces, having attacked Jerusalem, defeated it, and immediately beginning to deport several of its citizens back to Babylon. Likely part of this first deportation of citizens to Babylon were four central figures in the book of Daniel. And those are four young men, likely teenagers, named Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These four young boys who again were almost certainly in their early teens are described in Daniel 1 as having no defect, no problems. They were attractive. They were intelligent. They were wise and discerning. They were able to serve and lead at the highest level. They're brought into Babylon. They're given Babylonian names. They're taught the Babylonian language and customs. Now, Daniel is well known to us. His three friends are given the Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Once they have completed their three years of training in the Babylonian system, they are given positions of authority in the king's personal service. Now, these four young men are Jews, and they are in a foreign land that does not recognize their God. They're given privileged positions. But ultimately, they're in a hostile land, a hostile land that regularly tested the faith of these young men. The book of Daniel is a very diverse book. There are stories about these four young men, stories about Nebuchadnezzar, prophecies concerning the future, and one can quickly get lost in the, in the variety of the book of Daniel. But ultimately, the message of Daniel is that history belongs to God. History belongs to God. And as we come into this story, I think we'll see it very particularly communicated in the details of this scene of these three young men in the fiery furnace. Daniel portrays for us the rising and the falling of nations. It shows that all of the details of the nations, the rising and the falling of kings is all in the hands of God. And in his sovereign reign, His faithful followers are perfectly safe. In the sovereign reign of God, his faithful followers are perfectly safe. They may face death. They may even die. But if they are allegiant to the sovereign God, they can rest assured that he is in control, that they need not fear what man can do, that they need not fear what lions can do, that they not need fear what what fire can do. 
we can trust God. We come to Daniel 3, and Daniel is not in the picture, but his three friends are. They are currently authorities that are administrating a Babylonian province, and they're called to a location in Babylon for a massive, massive event. Let's read about it. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to begin just reading verses 1 through 3. We're going to kind of walk through this progressively uh, as, we, as we work through this sermon tonight. Daniel chapter 3, 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's an important event that takes place in the beginning of the scene and it sets the tone for the rest of this chapter. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has an image constructed. It's 60 cubits tall, meaning it's probably about 90 feet tall, six cubits wide, about nine feet wide. We don't know what this structure itself was. Many have assumed that it was an image of Babylon. Uh, It's possible that that's the case. It's unlikely that an image 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide was actually a human. It would be a very tall and skinny figure if that were the case. But whatever it is, the text doesn't ultimately tell us. Whatever it is, it's an image that has been set up for a very particular reason that we will soon see. Every single authority was called to this scene, which is a massive statement. Babylon was a world-dominating empire that was divided into many different provinces. Each province had an extensive leadership structure. All of the leaders of the provinces were called to this event. They were all present. Daniel spares no detail in the extent of the individuals that were present at this scene. He's repetitious and long in verses two and three. He calls them the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces. In verse three, he repeats it again. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers. Daniel is sending a message in these early verses that everyone that was anyone was at this scene. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of this world-dominating empire, calls everyone of importance to this. Everyone's here. And they're all standing in the shadow of this massive golden image. That brings us to verse four, where we see a command. Then a herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. A command is given by a man at the head of this crowd. The crowd is extensive. 
It's diverse. We're told that there are men from every language that are present at this scene. And there's an orchestra that's going to play. Again, Daniel spares no details in explaining this to us. He uses several, several different terms to refer to this loud orchestra that sound is going to fill the air. And when that orchestra plays, the command is that everyone who is present must fall down and worship the image. These are worshipful terms. They are to bow down and, and prostrate themselves before this image. They are to actively worship it. And if everyone follows those orders, then this will be a good day. But if anyone refuses, there's a punishment that is tied to refusing to bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar is set up. Look at verse six. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So a multitude has been assembled to bow down and worship an image. In Old Testament terminology, we understand that what they are being called to do is to bow down and worship an idol. A God. And if anyone refuses to do so, if anyone will not bow down and worship, they will be killed in a fiery furnace. They will undergo death by fire. The fact that there is a threat attached to this command shows that this is much more than a fun gathering of leaders. And that this is just one element of the many things that they were doing together. Nebuchadnezzar is doing something here. It's very important to Nebuchadnezzar that everyone worship this image. When we begin to understand this in the text, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a very political agenda in this scene. He has called every political leader. He has called them to all do one thing. And he has said that if they don't, it's punishable by death. What's the big deal? Why does it matter if people bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a massive political agenda here. He is reuniting his leaders under his political and religious authority. Nebuchadnezzar is saying to all the rulers within the provinces that he oversees, I make the rules. You obey or you die. If you are unwilling to follow my political and religious authority, then I have no use for you and I will, I will kill you. So he threatens death. There are three young Jewish boys who are present in this scene. Three young Jewish boys who are amongst these leaders that have been called to bow down to this idol. Three young Jewish men who all of a sudden find themselves in an incredibly difficult situation. Seems likely that they didn't know what they were being called to do. All of these individuals showed up and then they receive instructions on what's going to happen at this scene. So these three young Jewish men walk into this scene and realize what is taking place and what is taking place is a situation of the highest possible pressure. First of all, this is a situation before them of explicit sin. 
It would be explicit sin for these three young Jewish boys to bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. These were faithful Jewish young men. They knew the law. They have already demonstrated, if we read back in the book of Daniel, their unwillingness to waver from what God has commanded. The law explicitly demanded that they only worship the one true God. In the all-familiar Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, we read, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And watch this. You shall not worship them, nor shall you serve them. The law was very clear that no Jew should worship any other image, any other idol. And what these three young men are being called to do is explicitly bow down and worship the idol. This is a situation of explicit sin. It's a golden image. It's an idol. It is another God. This would have been direct disobedience for these young men. Not only is it a situation of explicit sin, it is a situation of the highest possible pressure. First of all, just the magnitude of the situation that Daniel goes into detail to describe all of the people that were there, the grandiose nature of the situation. Every authority in the dominant world power is present. This is the ultimate peer pressure. Not only that, but it has just become clear that their lives are on the line. If they disobey, they die. Further, this command is coming not from any man, but from the most powerful man on the planet. Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of the dominant world power. And he is the one that is looking these three young men in the eye and calling them through a herald to bow down and worship what he has set up. This is the highest possible pressure. That three young men probably teenagers, are facing. And as they face this incredibly difficult scene, what we're going to see in this text, and this will be our outline for the rest of the night, is two shocking displays in faith that was held to the flame. Two shocking displays in faith that was held to the flame. The music begins to play. And these three young men, seemingly given very little time, have a decision to make. Will they obey God or will they obey men? Let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all of the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. 
They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, you have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Behind the scenes, we realize that the three teenagers Refused to bow down. Everyone bowed down. Except these three. Everyone obeys the commands. In this massive gathering. They fall down. They fall down on their faces. And these three teenagers. They can't hide. There's nowhere they can go. They're in a massive gathering and everyone is on their faces except these three who are left standing, who are easily identified as resisting the command of the king. And so they're immediately reported to Nebuchadnezzar by name. And their accusers make it personal. Look back at verse 12. They say halfway through verse 12, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They refuse to worship your gods. They refuse to worship the image that you have set up, O king. They identify these men as resisting the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is livid. He's furious. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. There's a double emphasis in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gives these orders. And in verse 14... He asked them a question. Look at it. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Could you possibly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have resisted my command? We find out in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar has a very high view of himself. He's not used to being rebelled against. And these three young men rebel against him. And he says, did you really? Against me? Do you know who I am? You rebel against me? In verse 15, he gives them a second chance. Now, if you are ready, if you're ready... At the moment when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Sounds familiar. This is a second chance that Nebuchadnezzar is giving these three young men. He asked, 
He asks if they're ready, as if perhaps the fact that they didn't bow down the first time was because maybe they weren't quite ready. Though the multitudes bowed down, they just missed their chance. So he says, okay, Abednego, are you ready? Here comes the music. I'm making this easy for you. They're being tested again. They are face to face with the world's most powerful leader and he's furious with them and their lives are on the line. They can't hide. There's a piercing statement at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's furious request. Look at the last line in verse 15. He says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Clearly, the resistance of these three young men to bowing down to this idol is because of their allegiance to another God. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And so he sends them a message when he says, what God is there that could possibly deliver you from me, from my hands? Who could possibly deliver you from me? Now it's posed as a question, but this is a mocking question. It's a statement. He's not saying my idol is better than your idol. He's not saying my God that I've created is better than your God that you've worshipped. He's saying your God can't save you from me. I am greater than whoever your God is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who could possibly save you from me? This is the piercing comment that opens the door for these three young men to reply to Nebuchadnezzar. And as they reply, we see this first display. The first display is a display of reckless obedience. A display of reckless obedience. We begin to see this reckless obedience displayed clearly already in this chapter, but explicitly in verse 16 as they respond to the king. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. O king, O ruler, O most powerful man in the world, we don't need to answer you. On their lips is a defiant confidence in their God. They are defying the king to his face. They're defying him. And in doing so, they display that this defiance is not because of a disrespect of authority. These men have, dem- these men have demonstrated respect of authority throughout their time in Babylon. But what they display here is that their defiant confidence is placed in God. Why is their confidence so defiant in the face of the king? Because they know that God is more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's last question was, who could possibly save you from my hands, from my power? And they say, oh king, we don't even have to give you an answer. We don't need to answer you in this matter. 
Now, we need to be careful here. Our faith should not cause us to treat authorities with defiance. But these young men recognize that when someone is defying their God, that they must demonstrate their allegiance to that God. And that's what these three faithful young men are doing. They're demonstrating in the face of a man who is defying their God that they are allegiant to that God. Their confidence is so strong that it leads towards a defiance towards one who opposes God. They trust him. Look at what they say. Verse 17. If it be so, if you want to kill us, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They know that Nebuchadnezzar is wrong. They know that there is a God that can save us from his hand. And so they speak back to him, our God, our God is able to deliver us. He's able to deliver us from any threat. And they communicate both imminent threats in this text. They say our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And our God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. The furnace doesn't terrify us. You don't terrify us. We fear God. And so we trust God. He is able to deliver deliver us. Their confidence rests in the very power of their God. Their statement to Nebuchadnezzar is about what their God is able to do. He's powerful. He's able. He's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He's able to deliver us from the hands of the most powerful man. He's powerful. He can be trusted. We're not afraid of the furnace. We're not even afraid of you. They feared God rather than man. Even Nebuchadnezzar. Their confidence is so strong that it leads to a defiance towards the one who opposes God. They trust God. Now, These three young men are not promising that God will deliver them. But they know that he can. They know that he's able. Because God can do anything, he can be trusted in everything. That's what these young men know. Because God is all-powerful, he can be trusted. They know that God can deliver him. They know that he is capable, but they don't know his plan. They don't know if God will deliver them, though they know he can deliver them. And so they continue in verse 18. Look at verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh, he can save us. But even if he doesn't, we are allegiant to him alone. Not only do they display this defiant confidence in God, but they also display this deadly allegiance to God. We don't know what he's going to do, but we're allegiant to him. Now, many of us know the end of this story. 
we know how this story ends up. And it's easy for us to project the end of this story upon these three young Jewish men at this point in the story. This is very important. These three young boys don't know how the story ends. They don't know how the story ends. And so when they speak these words, it is as real as it could possibly be. When they say, we know God can save us, but even if he doesn't, that doesn't change a thing. We know that that is being spoken from the truthfulness of their hearts. They don't know how this story ends. Because ultimately the end doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if God saves them. It matters that they remain allegiant to him. And so they say, we're not bowing down. We're not serving you. These words are incredible from three young Jewish boys. Some of the most courageous and faithful words that I think have ever been spoken. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men are recklessly obedient. Reckless means having no regard for the consequences of an action. No regard for the consequences of an action. No regard for what might happen to them if they are obedient. No regard for what might happen to them if they defy the king. It doesn't matter to them. The consequences don't change their convictions. And this is what makes these young men so exemplary. With every imaginable pressure, they remain obedient. With every reason to bow down, they stand up. With every reason to give in, they resist. With every reason to say yes, they say no. And the reason that they can do that is because they have an eternal perspective. The earthly repercussions for their actions don't matter because they're concerned with higher things. They are essentially echoing the words of Christ in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. These three young men are saying to Nebuchadnezzar, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us? They're not afraid. They're echoing the words that we sang tonight. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? Because they're concerned for higher things because they trust the all-powerful God. Begs the question for us, what are the things that cause me to compromise on my conviction? These men's jobs were on the line. Their public appearance was on the line. Their life was on the line. But no loss of job No loss of respect, no loss of life could cause them to compromise on what they knew was right. What are the idols that may cause me to compromise on my convictions? Do I have a faith that says, I know that God can, but even if he doesn't, I'm faithful to him and him alone. These young men believe that. And so they displayed an exemplary, reckless obedience to God. But there's a second display in this text as we move through it. A second shocking display in the faith that was held to the flame. And that is a display of God's saving power. A display 
of God's saving power. We come to the second half of this text and we begin to see Nebuchadnezzar's response. His mood hasn't changed very much. We come to verse 19. He was raging and angry before. And now it escalates. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. And his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry. He is, he's filled up is the terminology here. He is overflowing with wrath. It is written all over his face. I love Daniel's description here. His facial expression was altered. (laughs) It was written all over his face how furious he was with these three little insignificant children. He's not impressed by their defiant confidence in their God. He's well aware of the fact that he has just been defied. And so, in the second half of verse 19, he answered them by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Killing them all of a sudden wasn't enough. Nebuchadnezzar is irrational in his fury. He reaches for every element of emphasis that he can possibly find. He heats the furnace seven times hotter. Verse 20. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. They're tied up. They're thrown in. This was certain death. This was unsurvivable. In fact, their death is so certain. Look at verse 22. Daniel gives us the comment for this reason, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot. The flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The valiant warriors who just tied them up in all of their clothing, who are carrying them to the furnace to throw them into the fire, die from the heat of the flame. But even in this, this unsurvivable event, God's power is displayed. Look at verse 23. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. And he stood up in haste and he said to his high officials, was it not three men that we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the midst of the fire. 
certain death. And God delivers them. Nebuchadnezzar is watching them being thrown into the furnace. And all of a sudden, we get, we're given the terms, he is shocked, he is astounded, he stands up because he sees a fourth person in this fire. Another character shows up in the fire. Not only that, the four of these individuals that are now in the fire are all walking around together. Not just standing, not just not dying, but actually walking around inside of this furnace. I don't know why they were walking around in the furnace. I don't know if they're so casual, they're like playing ring around the rosies or something. I have no idea. It's a strange scene. But all of a sudden, there's four people and they're just walking around in there. It's fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar stands up and notes that in this white hot fire, one of them stands out as looking, in Nebuchadnezzar's terms, like a son of the gods. The other three look like men in a blazing hot fire. The other one looks different. We don't know who this fourth person is. Text doesn't tell us. Many have been quick to say that this was Jesus Christ. It's possible. It's not certain. Often people jump to Jesus Christ because of Nebuchadnezzar's term that he looked like a son of the gods. We need to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar and his polytheistic thinking was just saying that this looks like someone different. This looks like someone divine. So whoever this is, possibly an angel, possibly an appearance of Jesus Christ, we don't know. But we certainly know that God's hand is in this. We certainly know that God has intervened to save these men. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He calls them back out. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he responded to them and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar calls them back out and they walk out of the furnace. The details in this scene are just fascinating. Look at verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials, they all gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head even singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. We're given several fascinating details in that verse. First of all, this throwing into the fire was not a private event. This was happening in front of everybody. Everybody saw what took place in this scene. Those who came to worship the idol. Those who were just bowing down before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All of a sudden see on full display the power of the God of these three men. This is a public display. This is a statement to all of the rulers in Babylon. Look at the details about their bodies. In verse 27, the fire had no effect on them. Not a hair of their head was singed. 
their trousers were not damaged. And they didn't even smell like smoke. This is clearly only explained by the hand of a powerful God. By the hand of a God who is more powerful than the image that everyone else had just bowed down to. By the hand of a God that is more powerful even than Nebuchadnezzar. But these three young men did not just escape the fire. They did indeed escape the furnace, but the text is clear, and there's a theme that's happening in this chapter, that there is a a double escape, a double deliverance, a double salvation that takes place here. Now, often you may escape one form of punishment only to walk into the hands of another form of punishment. These men have just escaped the fire, but now they still find themselves face to face with the most powerful man in the world. Nebuchadnezzar is still there, the man that they just defied. Back in verse 17, they expressed a double confidence that God could deliver them not just from the fire, but also from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the one who said, who could possibly deliver you from me. That's exactly what God does. In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar attributes the confidence of these three young men to their service of the most high God. We're going to see more of that in verse 28 where he's going to speak blessing to God. God's power is displayed as he physically delivers these three young men. He places on public display his power. Not only that, his power is also displayed in the future protection that he gives for these three young men. Look at verses 28 and 29. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar says, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that these men serve an amazing God. Don't believe Nebuchadnezzar is becoming a follower of Yahweh in this text. He's in a polytheistic culture. He's simply acknowledging their God. But in doing so, Nebuchadnezzar does grant these men religious protection. Just a moment ago, he said to these young men, turn on your God or die. Now he says to everyone present, if anyone speaks against your God, they die. God's power is being displayed. It's displayed as he delivers these men. It's displayed as he provides future protection for these men. It's displayed even further in verse 30 when these men are promoted. Look at verse 30. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. They're caused by the king and ultimately by the hand of God to prosper. They are given more social benefit because of what took place on this day. Is that not an amazing story? This 
this story, this story amazes me every time that I read it. Three young Jewish men, unwilling to compromise, despite the consequences, they put God's glory on display by demonstrating their allegiance, and God delivers them from certain death, and in fact, promotes them. Verse 18 is so important. Just because God can doesn't mean that he will. Trusting in our God doesn't mean believing that he will protect us from every possible physical danger. It does mean, though, that we believe that he can. But it also means that we accept whatever he has for us. The outcome didn't matter for these men. And that's faith. We want to be very careful in a text like this. We could be here all night giving illustrations of faithful followers of Jesus who have walked into the fire and not come out alive. This is not a text that's promising that God will deliver us from every physical harm. God doesn't promise that we won't die, but he does promise that it will be worth it. He does promise that there is blessing that comes with obedience. It's not always felt in this life, but it's worth it nonetheless. We come to a text like this and recognize that this is the God who is sovereign over history, that is sovereign over the flame, and that he alone is a God who can be trusted. That when our faith is put to the test, when our faith is put to the flame, he can be trusted because he has all power. He may not deliver us from every physical circumstance like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he is good. And he can be trusted in every scenario.